uh, there's been, I mean, by now everybody's seen a lot of drone footage and pictures. I can tell you, having been on the ground down there and just walked up and down the street in Oak, on Oak, Oak Heights where my dad lived and up and around the, the rest of the neighborhoods that were the hardest hit, it, uh, and I said this in our CNN.com piece, it didn't even feel like a weather event. It, it felt like a bomb went off, that houses were exploded, that trees were exploded. Attention passengers, we ask that you please fasten your seatbelts at this time and secure all baggage underneath your seat or in the overhead compartments. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is prepared for takeoff. It's Flyover Country with Scott Jennings. I'm the roundtable host. That's my new title, Scott, Joe Arnold, here with Kevin Grout, Kaylee Price, and Mr. Jennings himself. Scott, we've all been thinking about you and your dad, your entire family in Dawson Springs. We certainly saw a lot of the coverage of you in, in Dawson Springs and in Mayfield after the horrendous tornadoes that swept through uh, December 10th and 11th. So for those folks who haven't seen you on CNN or perhaps haven't read your op-ed with your dad on CNN.com, uh, just give us the latest. How are things? How are you? How's the family? Uh, thank you. And um, appreciate appreciate your starting with this today because it's obviously uh, really devastated a huge part of where I grew up in Western Kentucky. Uh, we've heard a lot of towns that have been hit, Mayfield, uh, Bremen, Central City, Bowling Green, Danville. There's a lot of towns out there. Mine was Dawson Springs, uh, which is in Hopkins County, where it sort of meets Caldwell County. Uh, my dad has lived there his entire life, uh, born there in 1958, graduated high school there in 1976. I was born in 1977 and graduated high school there in, in 1996. Uh, it, it, he's doing fine. And, and thank you for asking. He's lucky. Um, he does not have a basement. He got out of his house Friday night and went over to a friend's across town and got it in his basement. That part of town where he went, uh, wasn't damaged by the tornado as badly. Uh, but not everybody on his street was so lucky. Uh, several people in Dawson Springs died. A few of those were really within close proximity of my dad's property. Um, uh, there's been, I mean, by now everybody's seen a lot of drone footage and pictures. I can tell you, having been on the ground down there and just walked up and down the street in Oak, on Oak, Oak Heights where my dad lived and up and around the, the rest of the neighborhoods that were the hardest hit, it, uh, and I said this in our CNN.com piece, it didn't even feel like a weather event. It, it felt like a bomb went off, that houses were exploded, that trees were exploded. Uh, the amount of debris and rubble uh, and stuff and limbs and just everything you could imagine uh, was was overwhelming. I mean, it was overwhelming to my eyes. When I was driving down, my dad called me and he said, I'm just going to warn you, you're not ready for what you're about to see. And he was right. And the parts of town that were hit by the tornado were not really even recognizable to me. As someone who grew up on those streets, I was disoriented by it. So it's a, it's a tough beat uh, for a town that, that uh, was already struggling, like a lot of towns in rural Kentucky uh, that don't have significant industry or tax bases. And so I'm very worried for its future. Uh, I'm worried for the families who lost people. I graduated high school with a guy uh, whose mom and aunt, who were two beloved uh, figures in the community, died. I worry about, you know, those families ever, you know, ever really feeling uh, uh, any kind of relief from the grief and sorrow they're feeling. So there's just a lot of emotions that that are wrapped up in this for me and and for uh, all my fellow Dawsonians and all my fellow Western Kentuckians. The uh, and Kaylee and Kevin, obviously, I know you have your thoughts about this, too. I'll just, you know, it's, it's interesting, Scott, from a political standpoint, that uh, universally uh, the congressional delegation of Kentucky, which is 
only one member of that delegation is a Democrat. Everyone else is, is Republican. Six House members and the two senators have all been very complimentary of the federal response of the Biden administration, of FEMA, of Homeland Security. Um, what is this? I know it's a tragedy. I know we shouldn't talk about the politics immediately here, but um, I'm just curious about your 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 thoughts on that and what you've observed. Is is this? I guess this is what America is: is that when we face crisis, then we kind of put these things aside. Well, it's a good question because uh, oftentimes in our politics these days, we we hear people, you know, express the concern. Well, what if something bad happens? You know, can we even pull ourselves together enough to deal with it? And uh, time and again, we prove ourselves able to do it. Uh, in this particular case, uh, it is unusual. You know, Western Kentucky is a very Republican voting area. Kentucky has a Democrat governor uh, for various reasons, which we'll, we'll leave on the table for another show. <laughs> uh, so you've got a, a Republican, you know, rural area that heavily voted for Trump, heavily votes for McConnell, heavily voted for Jamie Comer, the congressman, did not vote for Andy Bashir in large numbers in 2019. And then on the ground yesterday, walking around Mayfield and Dawson Springs, you've got Joe Biden and, and Andy Bashir, a trail by Comer, who I think made the right decision by by going with them. And a lot, and look, virtually everyone encountered by Joe Biden and Andy Bashir down there probably didn't vote for him. And so it, it is one of those cases where people and politicians have to set aside those those personal political preferences and realize that that government offices don't always just exist for the sake of holding them. They exist for the sake of doing the job of public service. And I have to say, it feels like cooperation has been pretty good so far between Biden, Bashir, McConnell, Comer, the local officials. Um, you know, I've, I've heard a lot of a lot of praise at various levels and in various quarters of, of how it's all working so far. So I, I think I think so far it's fine. I think the real test of this, frankly, will be the long term recovery efforts uh, and in, in the decision making and in the in the strategy that goes around resources and whether these towns are going to be rebuilt. And if they are, how are they going to be rebuilt and where are people going to go and the, the mid to long term housing challenges? All that's yet to come. But the immediate response, I think, has been pretty, pretty good and, and uh, pretty cooperative across the levels of government and across the parties. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. I mean, from watching from the outside, Scott, you saw leaders at all level, local, county, congressional, all the way up to Joe Biden. A, a, a leaders stepped up and it was really inspiring to see. And it shows that, you know, our system still can work. Um, and, you know, a lot of them are elected leaders. A lot of them are just community leaders. Everybody, you know, we're going to meet up here with our chainsaws and go, you know, dig this home out or something. It's It's been really inspiring to watch it's that sense of community that we all talk about, but at the same time, we wonder if it still exists. And it, it showed that it did. You know, Kevin, you, you raise a, a thing about community leaders. My dad was telling me uh, yesterday, uh, there were some, some, some folks who showed up in their neighborhood on Oak Heights where virtually every house was destroyed. Um, and, you know, came through with chainsaws, trailers. One guy had a bobcat and they were really sort of going door to door, basically trying to help clear paths and, and clear out what they could. Uh, for folks who just didn't have the the means to do that. And and I think I've heard stories about that in virtually every community where you have, you know, uh, just random people to organize groups, to churches, to nonprofits, to, uh, you know, you name it. Uh, a lot of people have showed up. Heck, Saturday night after all this happened, I got a call on my personal cell phone from U.S. Senator Rob Portman of Ohio, who I've known for many years and who's actually going to be on this podcast next week. And he called me and said, hey, I got a couple of guys up here in Ohio that want to throw chainsaws in the truck and head down. What should we do? And so 
I was able to connect him with some local leaders in Bowling Green uh, where I thought perhaps he would be most useful in that immediate aftermath. He shows up down here and is, you know, cutting wood in, in Bowling Green alongside Doug Gorman, who's a candidate for county judge executive down there. So the, the outpouring of people, not not activated by their government, but just activated by their own hearts and their own sort of a, uh, intentions for public service has been really beautiful. It's been really beautiful. And I, and I think we'll have plenty of that to sustain the recovery effort, at least what's required in the short term, where we right. have to really encourage attention span is, is over the mid and long term. And, and what's going to happen to all these people who literally just lost everything. And, and I appreciate on that point, something both the governor and the president have been saying is, you know, we're, we're going to be here. Don't look away. And I think that's a, a message that, Scott, you've done a great job of amplifying. You know, don't look away from this because, you know, a week from now, a month from now, these people are still going to need some help. And um, all, all the good wishes that have come out in the last couple of days really need to be sustained. Yeah, and I think it's really kind of refreshing to all of us. We we work in politics. So we live and breathe it some days and here on this podcast we talk politics all the time and sometimes it can be a little draining to see that politics is infiltrating life in in every way really i mean you look now at when we go to the grocery store we're thinking politics because of inflation when we go to the gas pump we're thinking politics think about politics in every way and for this to have happened it's just awful but to see that politics didn't have to transcend this i think is you know for Kentuckians that are struggling right now, I, I think it's really refreshing to see that this didn't have to be about politics um, and it could be more. I think, you know, one thing we're going to see now is the aftermath of last weekend, Mayfield was first one on the map kind of, of, of the destruction. Then it came out Dawson Springs had all of this. Bowling Green had all of this. Life was lost in Muhlenberg County. I don't want to leave anybody out, but there's also been all these little towns along the way that are these rural communities that may only be 10 homes, a big farm, and they were wiped clean also. And right now they're not part of the federal disaster zone. And so I think this will be interesting to see on the bipartisanship here. Does that continue adding these other little counties and whatnot to it? Because that's that's yet to be done. That's very perceptive, Kaylee. Uh, as you guys know, the, the podcast listeners wouldn't. I, I My... Uh, my job is communications for the rural electric cooperatives of Kentucky. And, and of course, these are going to be places that are not densely populated by the def- very definition of rural, right? And the farms and things. And so if you're looking for a dollar figure or for a density kind of formula to equate whether the disaster is large enough to qualify for federal relief, it might not happen in some of the most rural outposts. But at the same time, for that individual person who lost their entire operation or maybe their entire herd, you know, or, or a big portion of it, it is a it is a life changing disaster, you know, for, for them. So it is important. And I saw that um, Congressman Brett Guthrie of Kentucky led a, a letter signed off by the entire delegation asking exactly to your point for a, a number of other counties to be joined in on that disaster declaration and to make sure that they're remembered there. As I say, I think it's a really great point of, you know, all these areas may not qualify, there may not be enough, but what we've seen is a great example of how government can help in some ways, but also private business, private citizens can come up and stand in the places where government simply can't do everything. Um, and I think we as conservatives don't 
necessarily want government to do everything. That's where you get skyrocketing debt and everything. And so the, the donations that are pouring in from across the country are just, it's a really great example of government and private working together, I think. So what is the uh, future here, Scott? Uh, These are the communities and, you know, and for those folks outside of Kentucky listening, this is Western Kentucky, the coal fields that have not been in great financial shape overall with the decline and the the change, the economic transitions, very similar to Eastern Kentucky in that regard. The central part of the state, generally speaking, is doing better uh, economically. And so the question is for your hometown, that perhaps 75% of the houses are wiped out. You're already having maybe 25% of the people who live there are below the poverty line. You know, what is the future for that kind of a, of a, of a community? And how does that, and this, and this, the second part of the question is this, is who decides to Kaylee's point? Because I, as a former journalist, I have had the occasion to respond to and cover a number of natural disasters. And there is, this is a, this is a side note here, but bear with me as far as who's, has control over someone else's, um, you know, fate. There is there is a sense of of people wanting to help, and they end up kind of coming in, in my experience, and taking over. And so the people who are typically the the elected leaders, the ones who are in that town who would normally make the decisions, suddenly are part of a committee of other people who are coming in and to kind of telling them, "Here's the way things are going to happen." And so I'm curious how this how you see that. It has to do with public-private. Has to do with our sense of what the government's role is, and and what maybe you even observed. And of course, you were there. Literally, things were still. I mean, it was just dissipating from the original tornado. But what are your thoughts on this? And in terms of who makes these decisions moving forward, especially if there are there strings attached to some of this funding? Well, I think um, you know there's a couple of layers of questions. One is just the base individual question of. Do I even want to rebuild here? You know, my dad and I have been having that conversation all week. He got, uh, I have to say, his insurance company, you know, got on the phone with him. His house was declared a catastrophic total loss and uninhabitable. He's already got a one check in the mail and is expecting another one. So, you know, that was good. Uh, but I can tell you that, you know, the settlement he's going to wind up out of all this after all the bills are paid and everything. It's not enough for him to rebuild there. It's not enough for anybody to rebuild because what it would cost to build that house in today's dollars and, and with the price of things and the supply chain the way it is, it's not possible. And so I, I just assume a lot of individuals, Joe, are going to, are going to, you know, in towns that don't have a, a huge base of industry or opportunities, they're going to say, you know, is this really where I want to rebuild? Is, is everyone else going to rebuild? And if I do rebuild, you know, how long am I going to wait for this this area to come back? And is that the quality of life I want to have? And so I think at some individual level, you know, obviously there are going to be people who drift away. They go somewhere else. They go where they have relatives or they know of other opportunities for themselves. My dad's sort of reaching or near retirement age and uh, right at it. And but he still wants to work a couple of years. And and uh, but he's not really tied to that town exactly uh, in the way you might be if you had a job, you know, that was tied to something in that town or had kids in the school system or something of that nature. So I just assume that some people, Joe, are going to make the decision to to go elsewhere. If I were the leader of a town like this, I would be thinking hard about two things. One, making sure that there were actual housing opportunities available for people that want to stay. I think the biggest danger for these towns is people just drift away because they literally have nowhere to go and there's nowhere to live. There's 
nowhere to stay. And then if you do wind up with those housing opportunities, how do you make that as short term as possible? I think this is going to be uber challenging because, I mean, heck, even if you just want to get something minor done to your own house right now, it's very difficult to get the supplies necessary to do it, let alone rebuilding 75 percent of the houses or, you know, housing complexes in a, in a town. So I think that's going to be a, a major challenge, uh, even if there is funding and even if money is flowing and even if even if there there seems to be programming available. I don't know if it's going to be that easy. I don't know if it's going to be that simple. Now, I think Mayfield, they've got some things going on down there. And Bowling Green is one of the most vibrant towns in Kentucky and growing and thriving. They've got a, you know, I, I think there's there's every reason for people who lost their homes in those communities to want to rebuild. But I think like a Dawson Springs and a Bremen and a Central State, I think they're different. You know, I just think I think they have different circumstances and the challenges of keeping people around are a lot harder for local officials. And I, I think Scott hit on a point about the problems that were already there about affordable housing, right? Like there's already not enough affordable housing out there. The pandemic exasperated that issue. And now it, in Dawson Springs, for instance, the affordable housing actual units were also damaged. So not only were there not enough, but there's actually nothing for them to go to now. Demand was already higher than things were coming on board, even in rural communities. And so you go to a place that has, you know, below poverty line average wages or in in the mid 20s. And I mean, yeah, I'm with Scott. People that are homeowners, maybe maybe there's a little bit different, but there's so many people that can't afford that and, and don't have those homes. And they just have to get to another unit where their kids can be in the school district and they can get back to work. And so if the jobs aren't open and the units aren't there, it makes sense that they would go elsewhere. So it's, it'll be interesting to watch happen. And I'm not sure, Joe and, and Kevin, that, I mean, some problems government just can't solve mm-hmm. and, and certainly can't solve them in a short period of time. I mean, these were struggling areas already. You know, Dawson Springs, you know, was a health resort in the early part of the 20th century. Then it was a coal town. And you know, since the decline of coal, they've never really figured out what to do next. For a lot of people, uh, you know, this this might be the the thing that finally convinces them, hey, I got to I got to go where the jobs are. And, and there are places in Kentucky that are thriving and doing well and places to go. Um, and so that that is the challenge. You know, government can't show up and wave a wand and say, you know, here, here's a thousand jobs. You know, it's just it, that is not going to happen in this case. And and that'll be a you know, that'll be a real challenge for the people who were elected to run these towns. You know, when the mayor of Dawson Springs got elected, I'm sure he, he didn't anticipate having to fight for the very existence of the town, but that's exactly what he's doing right now. You know, you're speaking though, to the whole concept of, you know, and talking about the flyover podcast here and kind of trying to communicate to folks outside of flyover country, you know, that this is a diverse mix of, of living, you know, styles, if you will, there, there are, there are urban, you know, there are cities here, there are, there are, uh, you know, cities in the, in the country and then there are rural areas and it's very, very different. And the challenges are very diverse within the state. Um, it's in, I, but to your point about, you know, this might be like the, sort of the tipping point here. We talked about this in previous podcasts in terms of how COVID has become sort of an accelerant or maybe uh, has caused people to experiment, for instance, on work environments and things like that that might have changed. Interestingly, rural areas um, have become more attractive as potential places for people to move to because you have the option of having a rural lifestyle, for lack of better words, rural values. That's a loaded word, I know. But people who are more comfortable living in that kind of an environment yet can still telecommute 
uh, because of what we're doing here today. The four of us are in four different rooms or different places and able to do that. I'm just curious about, you know, how, how this is all going to shake out. Right. It's almost to the, the other side of the coin that Scott was just talking about with, you know, people feeling unmoored. This is a, a real opportunity to have people reinvest in their communities. It's a, a, if they have the right leadership come in um, and obviously you need a base level of infrastructure, but you can in some ways redesign why, why people love their town and write, write the next chapter for them. I'm not, I don't know if that'll happen, but it's a, it's an opportunity that if a, the right leader with the right message can fill that gap, I think um, we could see see a, a next chapter for somewhere. You know, on the political end of this, it, you know, it's interesting. Yeah. I think the, the immediate response, you know, everybody's going to get judged on on how they handle the aftermath. But, you know, Kentucky has a governor's race in 2023. You know, Andy Bashir has now been presented with his second crisis. And this one, I think, you know, I think in the short run, everything the government's done so far seems fine. But I think the you know, I think what, what will be the issue in 2023 um, will be how far down the road are these communities in recovering, reinventing themselves, rebuilding, you know, um, and and so, I, I mean, the reality is some people, some places are going to are going to fare better than others. And uh, some people are invariably going to be happy and some people aren't. And so we'll see how it plays out uh, politically in Kentucky. Uh, uh, but it's, you know, for some of these towns, the the abyss is here. I mean, the great unknown just over the horizon is, uh, it's pretty ugly right now. When you, when you think about the the damage and just the, the prospects of people deciding to go elsewhere. If I'm a Democrat, Scott, I'm using this as a talking point for build back better and for infrastructure and for all the legislative uh, agenda of the Biden administration. Cause I'm saying this is basic human rights, basic human needs and infrastructure. So what's your what's your someone says that makes that makes that suggestion and that makes that connection down the road here. What's what all what's all three of your responses to that? Well, they've already passed an infrastructure bill. That money's already set aside, and, and so my assumption is that bill's already passed and signed into law, and and is coming coming the way of the uh, of the country is that's here, and and I assume some of that money will be used for rebuilding in West Kentucky. I assume the legislature will demand that Kentucky's portion of these funds be directed at least to some degree to West Kentucky. I, I personally don't believe the build back better plan is connectable to this. It's uh, I mean, <laughs> I mean, but, but at the, in the, in the iteration that Joe Manchin just killed, you know, it, it's nothing more than a hodgepodge of, of social programming desired by one party and not the other. And, and so I think if you, if you wanted to make a connection like that, you, you'd essentially be saying we have to reinvent uh our spending priorities. Cause, cause I just think basically what they're currently doing ain't it <laughs> the infrastructure bill. Yes. And that's coming, but I, I just don't see the connection at all. And, and I don't know that a Democrat's going to have any room to run on that in the state of Kentucky or, or really anywhere else, truthfully. And I think you can't legislate and have policy based on natural, what, what you need to do when there's natural disasters. I think those are two totally different things. And what he's trying to pass is an ongoing spending plan of, of how we spend our, our country's money, not how we respond to natural disasters. The, the two just aren't the same and I don't think can be lumped together. Yeah, I, I completely agree. There's no way that cutting taxes for the high earners in blue states is, is going to help West Kentucky. Yeah, I mean, that's, that, that was the problem with this bill from the beginning. Natural disasters aside, you know, so much of it was geared towards such a narrow group of people 
to please a political constituency that if you're out here in middle America and you're looking at this and, you know, it already looked bad to you. And mm-hmm. because your town got hit by a tornado, I don't think makes it look any better. In fact, it might make it look worse. Uh, when you right. consider- no, Nobody needs higher taxes, more inflation right now when they can't, you know, get lumber yeah. to rebuild their house or find anything in the grocery store. Yeah. So the uh, University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School, you may have seen the their budget model that came out, says that most U.S. households will need to allocate at least 6% more of their budget in order to, to to sustain last year's spending level on goods and services. In other words, inflation and what that equates to for the average household is an extra $3,500 in expenses this year. That's a published, that's an article that was published uh, this, this past week or a study from from that university there. And we're talking about the spending going on in you know, Western Kentucky or in places that were already struggling even before uh, natural disasters come along here. And so that's, I would think guys would, would, would not be a, a, a good timing for the, the, the spending bill that they're still Democrats are still trying to get passed. No, this inflation talk is, is killing their legislation. I mean, it's exactly the reason Joe Manchin always gives when he, pumps the brakes on on this. Uh, if they would just listen to him, they would understand where all this is headed. But you know, he's been saying the same thing for, for months, which is, I really think inflation is a problem, guys. Here's the thing, though. Why? So this is flyover country versus like think tanks, whatever. I think from the very beginning, inflation was a concern for many people of just rank and file Americans. And we were told, oh, no, no, no. It's not really, don't be, don't worry your, your, your little pretty little heads about that. It's all going to be fine. And well, it we seems like told, reality is catching up to normal folks. We were told that it didn't exist. That was number one. No but serious economist. Joe Biden said, no serious economist, you know, believes there's inflation. That was, okay, that was number one. Number two, well, okay, there's inflation, but it's transitory. You know, it's it's very sort of short term. Then it was, well, okay, there's inflation, uh, but we have nothing to do with it. And then it was then it was, OK, well, there's inflation, but we need to pass Build Back Better in order to make inflation go away, which nobody believes. I mean, it has been an increasing series of absolute ridiculous explanations for this. And nobody's buying it. But most of all, Joe, uh, Joe Manchin's not buying it. And that's the person they have to convince. They've obviously not done it. Uh, and uh, and the fact that they don't understand this, the fact that they can't seem to to understand that they're going to need a total strategy remake here is, is just baffling. And I mean, Biden is completely out of touch with Joe, the 3,500 number you just gave, right? That's so in a year that's, or this morning, Biden said families have more money in their pockets in each month than they, they did last year after accounting for inflation. He's saying they have $100 more in their pocket each month. That was just this morning. He put out a statement about this. And yet inflation is showing 3500 So there's still a difference there. And he's just completely out of touch. I mean, a new poll came out, I think it was this morning, asking Americans, do you believe that inflation has impacted you in the last six months? 67% say yes. And on the same day that that poll comes out, Joe Biden is saying, they have more money. They're, everybody's great. It's no problem. He, he still just doesn't get it or refusing to accept it. I don't, I don't know. But it was amazing to see that statement this morning. And they keep doubling down. I mean, every time they've in, in Congress have set up one of these uh, faulty deadlines that we need to get it done by this date, they just look 
more and more ridiculous and less responsible. Now, you know, for the longest time, Senator Schumer was walking around saying they're going to pass it by Christmas. Uh, he stopped saying that because he knows it's a farce. They just look like they're swimming toward a buoy that no one is on board with. Does this all link back to, it seems that uh, the worse the pandemic is and the worse that the pandemic is regarded, the more the Biden administration can say, well, of course, inflation is going to be worse because the pandemic has caused all these problems versus the uh, maybe another camp that would say we need to get back to normal. I think we're all making faces that that's not a uh, not a, a legitimate connection there. Like you sound well, like Joe I mean, Biden. Heard, you're trying to, you're, this is your next iteration of why it's not their fault. Right. Well, it's the pandemic right. now. And, and, and certainly right. there are ebbs and flows in, in the economy like that. But this is there a are, serious there, I mean, problem. supply chain disruptions are real. Right. And so the question is, is how much of this is due to supply chain disruptions that have been precipitated by COVID restrictions and problems like that around the world? And how much of this is due to the fact that all this extra spending and by the way, not just by Biden. I mean, I, I don't have the, the, the tally in front of me, but during under Trump, there was a ton of money already poured into the economy. Right. So, I mean, at this point, you would—I mean—it stands to reason that that there's always going to be a you know something butterfly effect. There's going to be an effect there, but I don't know. I'm just—I'm just. To me, I guess let me just get to the—I got to the pandemic question. Is—is is there? How much political capital is there in keeping the pandemic front and center and the cause of all of our problems, rather than self-induced wounds? Does that make sense? What I'm asking. Well, what you're asking is, is are politicians going to artificially keep pushing the pandemic as an emergency uh, to serve their own political interests, even if it might not be backed up by, you know, public health data? I mean, look, I think on this Omicron issue, uh, you, you already see the people out who've been who've been sort of the, the freak out artists all along freaking out again and trying to trying to scare everybody back into their houses when when a lot of the data and evidence so far is that Omicron is not the same kind of uh, symptoms that the original, the original strain was also it's apparently mitigated by, to some degree, by the, by the uh, vaccines, especially if you've had your booster. So, so at some point um, where the rubber hits the road here is, is, you know, are people just going to be done with this and say, look, we deal with all kinds of things. We deal with the flu. We deal with the common cold. We deal with, you know, various kinds of diseases. We have medicines. We have shots. We choose to take them. We choose not to. We learn to live with it. And we move on. And I, I think on Omicron, you know, we'll have to see how it develops. But um, you do have the hair on fire types out there already, you know, case counts skyrocketing, case counts, you know, catastrophic. Well, is it? I mean, you know, if if, if the if the variant is is not as deadly. And if the vaccines work and if, you know, if, 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 if this is becoming more manageable, just like we manage all kinds of other things, then how irresponsible is it to run out and try to scare everybody back into their houses again? I mean, I saw, you know, Joe Biden, I'm glad he came to Kentucky, glad he came to Dawson Springs, but you know, he's out walking around outside amidst the tornado rubble in a mask. Now, you know, I mean, we've pretty much known for well over a year that Outdoor transmission is not really a thing and and that the vaccines work. So, I mean, and I, I didn't notice too many other masks on, even on Andy Bashir. There, there was, there, there was uh, inconsistent masking. My memory is when they landed on the tarmac at Fort Campbell, 
and we're meeting with former Governor Steve Bashir and Andy Bashir, the current governor, his wife. I believe everybody was maskless at that point. I think they were just having conversations. And then they, when they made it into the community, you know, around then maybe that's an intentional distinction. I don't know why it would be. Then everyone was wearing the masks because that was a, well, I shouldn't say because. Well, the thing is, everyone wasn't wearing the mask. It was just the president. I mean, I didn't see Andy Bashir wearing a mask uh, and, and many, many others. Certainly the residents he was meeting weren't wearing a mask. And so I, I don't know. I feel like our government has frequently undermined what's in its best interest. You want everybody to believe in the vaccine. You want everybody to believe that this miracle of modern medicine works. And, and you tell people, hey, and by the way, in West Kentucky, vaccination rates are lower. So you want everybody to believe it's a good idea to get these and then you can live your life if you get your shot. And yet the president of the United States is out walking around wearing a mask. And I, outside, and I just, I just find this, I have found this part of the response so baffling from the beginning, the undermining of confidence in the vaccines. When the data is clear, the vaccines work. And yet the public messaging and the public posturing is so unclear giving you the impression that they don't work. And I don't think they've ever really reconciled uh, what they're doing to vaccine hesitancy with their actions. That's what I was just going to say. If you think Joe Biden went into uh, Dawson Springs and Mayfield yesterday and convinced a single person to get a vaccine by wearing his mask around, I mean, he, he did the exact opposite in an area that's already low vaccine adoption. Well, Scott, do you think that he's still wearing that mask because one, he still thinks he's right, or two, because he refuses to admit that he was wrong? Well, I think it's number three, because let's be candid about the politics of this. A huge portion of his political base will never take their own masks off. I mean, a huge portion of his base. I mean, you can see it. There was a a Democrat strategist the other day, Patty Solis Doyle. We're never going back to normal. That is a message that is embraced by a far larger portion of Joe Biden's political base than they want you to than they want you to believe. But you think about all the people who voted for him. What percentage of them are desperate for this to go on forever, who are convinced that it will go on forever, who will never leave their homes, who will never take their masks off, who will constantly be going up and down the grocery store aisles looking for people to chastise a huge portion. And so he's really stuck between a country that wants to move on and manage this in the best way we can and get back to our lives and a political base that doesn't. And that is the Scylla and the Charybdis of the Biden presidency trying to navigate these two things. And it's you know, obvious that, that he's chosen his path, which is to placate a base when I think the rest of the country is ready for him to move on. Of course, it's uh, ancient history now almost to remember things like flatten the curve. But, you know, there are there's we've had, you know, a variety of moving goalposts over the years. And the question becomes, as far as flattening the curve again, flatten the curve. Remember, the the concept of that is you can't stop this. The virus is going to be the virus. It's going to play out. The, the, the point of it is try to manage it as much as possible so you don't overwhelm the health system at any one time. Now, the question is, over a period of time, I would think this just, you know, 30,000 foot view here is that the health system has had an opportunity over the last 18 months to gear itself up and to understand what these waves are like, unlike what it was unexpected when it first came out. Right. But now you have a situation where you would think, okay, now we're ready. 
I'm not saying it's okay for people to get sick or okay for people to die, but people do that every day for a variety of reasons. And now that we know what to expect, it's different than, you know, the the tornado you know, or disaster like that coming out of nowhere. Scott. Yeah, there's there's a couple of things I read this morning that that I think are very important for people to see. And and just as important are the sources. The New York Times. We look at the latest on Omicron. And here's a passage. Omicron, this is a direct quote from the New York Times. Omicron presents only a very small risk of serious illness to most vaccinated people. The kind of risk that people accept every day without reordering their lives not so different from the chances of hospitalization or death from the flu, from the flu. CNN, who I work for, quote, there are some reasons to believe that the cases will be overwhelmingly mild, even more so among the fully vaccinated. But public policy and frankly, many people's perceptions of COVID have not caught up to this new reality. Well, I'll tell you who it hasn't caught up with is Joe Biden, because if he were smart, he'd be out on this message saying, there's no reason for alarm here. This could be mitigated by getting your shot. And we're not going to totally upend the country. But I think, you know, they may not realize it, but just walking around outside with your mask on, even if he says the right thing, still undermines those messages of don't panic. And and I just, I feel like the country is, if you want the number one reason why his approval ratings are low, it's incompetence driven by people moving on, on coronavirus and, of course, Afghanistan. But the idea that he doesn't get what I just said out loud that was printed in the New York Times and CNN is a major political problem for him. And it's not going to get any better if Omicron continues to do what they think it's going to do, which is to be mild, mild. We deal with mild illnesses every day. And the number one message, as it has been from the beginning, must be get your shot, live your life. Get your shot, live your life. That's, That's always been the right message, and yet they can't seem to find it. But the people paid to be smart are saying we need to shut down campuses right now because it's too dangerous and go back to online learning. And it seems to me that if a lot of things were attributed to Glenn Youngkin's win in Virginia, but I think education issues and school issues were chief among them. And like like I said, a huge part of Joe Biden's political base will never let this go. Who do you think the people running college campuses voted for? I mean, this is his, this this is what I'm talking about. The core audience he's trying to placate are those people right there. Let's say that you become David Gergen, Scott. You're you're, you're David Gergen. Any of us would do. You're you're invited tomorrow into Joe Biden's inner circle because he wants to pull David Gergen and and have you be the bipartisan political, uh, you know, uh, (laughs) advocate here. So the advice you're giving Joe Biden in the White House tomorrow is, this, this is the biggest shift he has to make? There is only one piece of advice on this, and it is get your shot, live your life, and don't allow your political base to drag you into a corner of this pandemic response from which you cannot politically emerge. They cannot run another campaign the way they ran the last one from his basement. They just cannot do it. They'll never recover if, if, if you have huge swaths of his base shutting down large portions of American life, whether it's college campuses or businesses or the schools we send our kids to or whatever, if they are intent on letting those people dictate what happens in America for the next three years, they are going to lose and they are going to lose badly. Surely he knows this. 
But then I see him walking around Dawson Springs in a mask, and I say, maybe he doesn't. Well, because we just saw in the last election, presidential election, what happens when you only focus on your base, when you're not trying to find those people in the middle. I think you said that before, Scott, that just just playing to your base is never a winning strategy. Yeah, by the way, who are, who are the people on college campuses, the ones you cite, Joe? Who else are they going to vote for? I mean, you know, Joe Biden, I, I, I feel like they, they feel like they got to placate these people. Who are they going to vote for? Are they going to vote for Donald Trump if he gets renominated? Are they going to vote for Ron DeSantis if he gets? Of course not. So at some juncture, you have to like, you know, listen to the middle of the country. You know, I, I, the other night I was uh, listening to a, uh, a, a speech by someone and he was he was saying uh, it was a state senator. Actually, I was like, <laughs> a very astute conversation. He said there's 10 percent of the left on the fringe, 10 percent of the right and the rest, 80 percent of the country in the middle. Not, not all that far apart on a lot of these issues. And yet I feel like Biden on this is placating 10 percent on the far fringe. And I just think a lot of folks in the middle are not going to they're over it. And they're looking for some leadership to also say, I'm over it and I'm going to be reasonable and exhibit some common sense here. Well, one area where people did come together as we wrap up this week was, in fact, coming full circle on the the tragedy and the tornadoes that struck uh, in Kentucky. Uh, Scott, I know that you have been uh, a, a proponent of supporting the Democratic Governor's uh, Fund for Western Kentucky, among other uh, sites. Uh, that's Team WKY Relief Fund, Team WKY Relief Fund dot KY dot gov. Not the they need to run switch public relations, I think, to come up with a better uh, moniker for the website. But that said, it's still worthy. And I think they've raised more than $10 million. Uh, but Team WKY Relief Fund dot KY dot gov. Yeah, I think you're right about that. And look, there's a lot of, you know, since since the governor's uh, fund came out, um, there have been a lot of um, a lot of other um, funds and, and things set up, uh, relief efforts. Some of it is monetary. Some of it is uh, in, in goods uh, that have been delivered. Um, what I would argue for is the media outlets are all carrying, I think, pretty robust lists of how to help. You know, that relief fund you mentioned is on there, you know, Red Cross. Uh, there's some individual uh, faith-based services in West Kentucky that are collecting money for various reasons. So th- there's a lot of a lot of things that have been set up. I would just argue for this: make sure whatever you're giving to is credible and not not a scam. Unfortunately, I Absolutely. think there will be people who try to take advantage of this. And also, I think listen to the local people. I uh, I've seen some people sort of throw tantrums that the folks who just lost their homes won't like take their help the way they want to deliver it. <laughs> and uh, and I you know I, it's not about you; it's about them. And so find a way to help that meets the actual needs at that moment of the local community. And today it may be money. Tomorrow it may be blood. The next day it may be some kind of goods. But just make sure you're being as responsive as possible to what the locals are saying uh, and, and that your resources go to a credible, efficient spot. Closing thoughts, Kevin Cayley. Well, I completely co-sign what, what Scott said. I, I looked and I'm, I'm due to give blood again. Um, I think this weekend is when I'm allowed to again. So I, I'll probably make a plan this weekend to do it. Um, you know, God bless all the people who, who have leapt into action. And uh, we, we've really seen, seen the best of our state. And I'm really proud to see it. Yeah, best of the state and people coming from out of state from, from everywhere. Lots of 
really heartwarming stories um, amidst the sadness. And, and I think like, like someone said at the beginning of this, you can't forget them, you know, our, our life in a week goes on and it's back to normal. And we tend to forget about things like that. Um, But there are folks that truly are going to have nowhere to live for months and we can't forget about them. Are you all avid blood donors? Kevin sounds like you are. I've, I've, I've tried to give as often as I can. I'm scheduled to give on, uh, Christmas Eve, uh, which is my next available date. So I really, I, I've, I've just, I keep hearing from the Red Cross that blood shortages mm-hmm. are critical. And, uh, and I also heard from the Red Cross that no matter where you are, so if you could be in Oregon and give blood and it might wind up in a disaster zone, like what's happening in Kentucky. So I, I really do think that's actually one of the best things people can do generally is get in the habit of giving blood. And so, uh, I, I would encourage everyone to do that and find a go to, just go to the Red Cross website and they make it real easy to find a spot to do it. The Flyover Country Podcast is on Twitter at the Flyover Pod. We appreciate your comments, your 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 five star ratings, subscribing, liking, sharing. That's Kevin Grout, Kaylee Price, Scott Jennings. I'm Joe Arnold. Thanks for listening. Thanks for supporting Kentucky. We'll see you next time here on the Flyover Podcast with Scott Jennings. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is a production of Bluegrass Media Lab, coming to you from the heart of Middle America, Louisville, Kentucky. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Flyover Country on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcast. Five-star reviews will help us keep making the content that you love. To find my latest television hits, columns, and other commentary, go to scottjenningsky.com. And you can also find me at scottjenningsky on Twitter and Facebook. Thanks for listening, and talk to you soon. Ladies and gentlemen, Make sure your seat backs and folding trays are in their full upright position. Cabin crew, please take your seats for landing and thank you for choosing Flyover Country with Scott Jennings.